Emma Frame here and welcome to Voices of Yoga podcast, co-hosted with Lindsay Porter, where we bring you inspiring yoga stories and insights from yogis and teachers from around the world. These stories highlight the benefits of yoga and encourage those who maybe haven't started yoga yet to get started and for the more experienced to delve deeper. We hope you enjoy. This is podcast number 150 and video podcast number 15. So today I'm really delighted to introduce uh, Robin Rothenberg Um, and Robin is an internationally respected yoga therapist specialising in low back pain and very much in uh, specialising in breath work um, and is also an author. So we have um, the most recent book at the moment, Restoring Prana, uh, Robin's book, and also uh, alongside it, which I think Robin has, is the breathwork journal that goes with it. So um, absolutely delighted to have you on the show, Robin, all the way from the States. So, so welcome to Voices of Yoga. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Delighted. That's great. So um, in the way that we do like to introduce our guests into Voices of Yoga, would you mind sharing your own personal yoga journey story and uh, maybe the benefits that you've gained over the years from having yoga in your life? Oh, well, I always say that um, yoga was the best parenting decision that I ever made, even though I didn't know at the time it was a parenting decision. So when I started yoga, I had two little babies. One was two years old and one was six weeks old. Right. So I was I was and I was pretty much a basket case. I'd been in premature labor. I had had all kinds of health issues. And all I knew is that I had to move my body because I'd been on full bed rest and I just felt achy and I had never been very physically fit. And there was a yoga studio in my neighborhood. And when I went by, they had this gentle class. And I thought, gentle, that's about as much as I can do. I think this would be a good thing. So I started the class and really from the first class, it felt like, oh yeah, this is what I've always wanted to do with my, my body. Like this made sense, even though I didn't understand asana, shmasana or any of the Sanskrit, right? But it made sense internally. Like I could understand what the teacher was saying and why she was asking me to move in these ways. It just felt right. And I felt taller afterwards and I'm only, you know, five foot two. So, you know, tall is good. Um, So uh, I just remember that summer evening walking home and thinking, this is amazing. I want to feel like this all the time. So that was just um, from that moment on, I just kept exploring more and more. And I started, you know, doing workshops and trainings and then more trainings and more workshops and um, just diving deeper. I was teaching within a year and then um, just kept growing from there. I just was hungry for more. Um, Along the way, I got healthier. And I got stronger. And I also, because my nature is always to do the bestest and the mostest that I possibly can, because I'm a pitta by nature, um, was uh, to push my body. Um, And so I started accruing injuries one by one as well. Because I really, I started with Iyengar yoga, and it was a very vigorous um, approach. And my body was very deconditioned. And I didn't know it at the time, but I actually wasn't made well for that form of yoga and so anyway as a result of that I started looking into other yoga you know lineages and I found vini yoga which was much better for my structure and also very oriented towards the breath and the yoga sutras and the philosophy and heart and spirit of yoga with a lot of mantra and 
um, Vedic chanting and that really took me down a very deeper and more satisfying um, practice and uh, study and then uh, my orientation towards yoga has always been um, oriented towards people like myself who couldn't do the fancy uber flexi poses um, and needed things to be adapted. I was a natural adapter because I needed so much adaptation myself. And um, I learned more about the art of adaptation from my teacher, Gary Craftsow in the Vinny Yoga Krishnamacharya tradition. And then built on that through the therapist training that I did with him to cultivate the, the foundation of my yoga therapy um, uh, practice, which I work full time working with people with chronic health issues and chronic pain. Um, uh, in the background on all of this, though, is that I had chronic respiratory issues and the respiration problems got better for a while with the pranayama practices that I was doing with with the in the Vini Yoga tradition. And then I started getting worse again. And I started having the low energy and kind of the fatigue and the fibromyalgia achiness return. And I hadn't experienced that for, you know, like 15 years. I was, what's going on? And anyway, that's what led me into looking at the breath and looking at it from a different perspective, which led to writing Restoring Prana and this deep study of breath and respiratory science and what functional breathing really is and why I'm here with you today. Look. That totally makes sense, doesn't it? Because a lot of our teachings and um, explorations come from our own progress and our own practice. So that, that makes sense that that drew you into writing the book. Um, so I have read your book and I have to say I absolutely loved it. Um, it's all dog-eared because I honestly couldn't put it down. It, was, it really did blow me away. I'm sure you've heard that before. Um, for a lot of reasons, I identified myself in it. Um, and I also, um, it kind of took the rug from underneath my feet a bit because of what I thought I knew about breath work and pranayama in the yoga world. But it kind of puts that on top of its head again, doesn't it? it it's it's quite, um, quite a change of way of thinking. Um, and some of the stuff that, that you cover, um, breathe less, the information about CO2, hyperventilation, a subtle quiet breath nose breathing and even right down to the the ujjayi breath not really being recognized within the ancient texts as as we see it today in the west so there were so many things that i want to talk to you about um so you have talked about what inspired you um can you for those who maybe aren't that familiar with the terms of pranayama and prana can you give sort of a basic description of what the book is is doing and, and who, who it's for yeah sure so um so like I said, I've been a deep student of yoga, of yoga philosophy and practices and really take them to heart. I'm not, um, let's say, just a uh, asana person, you know, like just move, you know, like sun salutations. You know, it's for me, it's really about a way of life. It's about personal responsibility and transformation on a very deep level, accountability, maturity, right? So, um, so when I realized that like I have this respiratory crisis and I, and that, and, and then the pranayama, the breathing practices um, that I had been practicing seem to actually be making my health worse instead of better. Um, that's when I started looking for help outside. Um, pranayama, the teaching of pranayama is that through the breathing practices, 
our physiology becomes balanced and we experience this incredible um, potential of a health and vitality, right? Because pranayama is linked to prana and prana, um, although people talk about it as energy and I say in the book, you know, there isn't really an equitable word, you know, same, same apples to apples. Energy is as close as we can get, but prana is more subtle than we often think about energy. Um, and it really, the pranas in the body from the Ayurvedic and yoga tradition are really what governs our physiologic and mental health. Like it's everything that moves through our system, you know, our circulation, our endocrine system, our capacity to digest and assimilate nutrients and eliminate waste, all of that, those are all functions of the winds, the pranas of the body. And whether they are in balance has everything to do with our health and well-being. And the teaching is that we can control and affect our pranas through the practice of pranayama, through the breathing practices, which is pretty potent. And why they there's so many of the references to pranayama say it, it's the ultimate practice, right? Because, you know, without health, where are we, you know, at this stage in the pandemic, I think we can all appreciate health is pretty important and breathing is very important. So the yogis got that, but I don't think I understood that when I was learning about pranayama. And I don't believe that that is actually the way pranayama is framed in most yoga training um, programs. Um, it's more like do these breathe, breathing practices and the more dramatic it is, you know, then the better it must be, you know. So when I started doing, you know, practicing yoga 30 years ago, um, the breath was not loud. I mean, it wasn't, there wasn't that emphasis. Now you go to classes, it's like, you know, it's almost like a competition who can make the most sound, you know, whereas what pranayama, yama means to restrain, mm -hmm. like the yamas are restraints. They're about restraining our, our let's say our primitive impetus to react and be violent and to lie and sort of connive and manipulate and hoard, like those are not useful for civil society. So the yamas are about restraining those tendencies so that our better self can come forward and we can be contributing to our benefit and the benefit of the world and those around us, our community, right? Yep. So in the same way, pranayama is about restraining our our impetus to oh, breathe all over the place, right? And to actually bring the breath into more of a metered, controlled, and stable place because the more the breath is running amok, the more our physiology is running amok and our chitta, our mind is running amok. So the teaching of, um, from the Vedas about the relationship between prana the movement of prana and the movement of mind is very clear. The more the breath moves, the more prana is erratic and chaotic, the more our mind is chaotic. And yoga, so um, Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodha, which is the second sutra, the first chapter of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, which defines yoga as the quieting, the stilling of the mind. You know, when the mind becomes still, not chaotic, but still. So that is the state of yoga. And that is the practice of yoga is to lead us into that state. So the question of who is the book for? Yes. First and foremost, it's for 
practitioners, teachers, therapists of yoga, people who are really um, dedicated to the practices of yoga to understand this first and foremost. If, this, if the intention of yoga is to bring us into this state of stillness and the teaching is that the quieter and more still the breath, the quieter and stiller the mind, so more yogic the mind, then why are we <laughs> breathing in erratic, chaotic, noisy, unsubtle ways to and expecting that the result will be quiet, still, calm, sattvic, balanced mind. Absolutely. Does it make sense? Yes. And that was the bit that I really picked up on because as you mentioned with your dosha, I'm a vata. And when I did my Ashtanga practice, that was the bit I just, I just couldn't connect with the Ujjayi breath. And yet that's what I was being told I had to do. And it had to be part of the practice. And, and although I could do the asana, that bit just bypassed me because it just didn't resonate well with me. Um, and to read it, to say, well, that's probably part of the reason why, because um, that over breathing wasn't actually doing my my own body much good, which was no. It was like spinning a hurricane, yeah. or a tornado through your already very windy system, right? It's, it's not grounding. That's not grounding. That's not stabilizing. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's very disruptive and potentially destructive because it can actually create a lot of imbalance in our physiology as well. Exactly. So um, touching on a few of the things within the book, um, first of all, a, a little bit about the anatomy of the breath so that people understand the value of your nose and what it can do for you. Everything. The nose is everything. Um, yeah. So um, it's interesting because I remember many, many years ago, I don't even know if I wrote this in the book or not, but one of my favorite teachers very early on um, used to say, if you insist on breathing through your nose, if you insist on breathing through your mouth, I'm going to feed you through your nose. And I remember thinking, you know, laughing. He had this kind of odd sense of humor that I, I liked. And I, I remember it stuck with me. So, you know, in yoga classes, I always sealed my lips and breathed through my nose. And I was a good nose breather on the mat. Big breather, but nose breather. Um, but it, it didn't occur to me that it was important for me to also breathe through my nose off the mat. It turns out that nose breathing is the healthiest, number one healthiest thing that we can do for ourselves. Um, we breathe over 20,000 times a day. Okay. And the, yeah, and the nose, which is, you know, other than our heart rate and our mind thought rate, um, it's the next, the third habit that we participate in most each and every day, right? So, um, Yoga is a lot about transforming patterns, habit patterns, so that we can live a healthier, fuller uh, life. So changing the breath pattern is big. 20,000 times a day of doing something and doing something different takes a lot of effort. However, it also means it has a big impact. So the nose is uniquely structured to prepare the air that we take in to, for, for the lungs, right? So it's the body's first defense mechanism, right? So it's very important to think of nose breathing as immune support. So the nose um, moistens the air, um, it warms the air, and it sterilizes and filters the air. 
So right now I'm living, I live in Washington state. We have been, I have been unable to go outside for the last five days because of the smoke from the fires. Cool. It's been so thick and acrid that it's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, un, right now the West coast has the most unhealthy air in the most highly polluted air in the world right now from the fires. It's that bad. No. And I know because of my study on the breath that as long as I'm nose breathing, at least I'm filtering out some of those particles. At least I'm not ingesting those particles into my lungs. Mm -hmm. But people who are mouth breathing, it's a direct hit. Then you think about COVID and you think about how the nose, inside the nose, are there are pockets of, in the sinus cavities, of nitric oxide. Nitric oxide has um, antimicrobial, antibacterial, and antiviral capacities, right? It also helps with oxygen uptake. So it's in the nose. The idea is we're breathing through the nose, and so the air is clean and moistened, right? It's filtered, it's warm, and that nitric oxide has an opportunity then to act on the air and shut down anything that might be harmful like a virus that we would be ingesting into our lungs right when we breathe through our mouth guess what whatever we take in directly goes right into the lungs so nose breathing you know there's a lot in the states i don't know how it is there but some states are mask mandated states and some states are and some people are very pushed back against it and some people say oh it just makes logical sense so i think masks are very important i'm a big proponent of masks it just makes logical sense at the same time people might be mouth breathing with a mask on like i actually feel more offended when i'm on a walking trail or riding my bike on the trail and i see somebody jogging with their mouth open Mm -hmm. than somebody who's nose breathing without a mask. Okay. Because honestly, in terms of their health and what they're spewing out, right, because it filters both ways, right, it's much better for everybody if we're nose breathers first and then mask wearers second. Okay. But the nose breathing is not getting prioritized. But really, it's the healthiest thing we can do for ourselves and the best protection, whether we have a mask or not. And then... Secondly, mask up on top of it, which is an extra preventative. But mouth breathing with a mask on, I mean, it's certainly better than mouth breathing without a mask on, but really, and, and first and foremost, nose breathing. That's a great tip. Yes, absolutely. And I think if people understood the importance of the nose, then we, we wouldn't react against um, learning how to breathe through the nose and not through the mouth because they would know the benefits. But I feel that it's such an important thing, but a lot of people don't really realize how important it is. That's true. And it's, it's, it's really unfortunate. I mean, when I first got turned on to this, first of all, I'm in the, you know, Mouth Breathers Anonymous Club. Like I was a mouth breather for my whole life mm -hmm. um, and an overbreather and a hyperventilator. And I had no idea. And I was a yoga teacher and a yoga therapist. And I was overbreathing and teaching modeling overbreathing and hyperventilating like everywhere I went. So, you know, that's, I, I often say I wrote the book out of, you know, guilt and to make amends for all my, um, <laughs> my miscommunication, misinformation that I passed along for so many years. Um, but, but really, um, 
the the importance of nose breathing just it, it can't be emphasized enough it it really it's hard to do if one is a mouth breather uh chronically habitually because we get accustomed to more airflow in and out it affects our chemistry the balance between our oxygen and co2 and our body gets acclimated to that the best way i can explain this that seems like people understand it is we do the same thing in terms of caloric intake. Like if we eat more than our body needs, like we know for most of us, unless we're you know high performance athletes, eating somewhere between 2000 or 2500 calories a day is sufficient, right? Yeah. However, you know, it's fun. Ice cream is fun and popcorn is fun. And you know what, donuts are fun. You know, let, you know what I mean? And a second helping, it's delicious. Why not? Let's have more. So, you know, okay, 3000, 4000, whatever. But if we eat on a regular basis, 4,000, 5,000 calories a day, our body gets used to that. And if we drop it down to 2,500, we feel hungry. Yes. Even though that's healthy and healthier, it feels like, oh my God, I'm starving. I can't possibly live on this. I need more. That's the signal we're getting, right, in our mind, right? because our body has gotten accustomed to it in the same way. And it takes time and it also takes willpower. You have to say to the mind, yeah, that's what you think. You really don't need that extra portion. You're fine, right? This is enough. You have to do your mantras and your internal practices and visualize how much better you're gonna feel once your body gets used to this new lower calorie intake, right? And you have to stay with it long enough that the body starts to go, oh yeah, 2,500, this is cool, I'm good here right? But it's a process. In the same way, going from being a habitual overbreather or a mouth breather to a calm, subtle nose breather feels like you're starving, right? It can feel like, oh my God, I don't have enough. And that's why it's so critically important to work with somebody who is a, an expert and is knowledgeable and knows how to titrate and adapt the practice so that you're supported in that, you know, shift, that dietary shift, right? Mm -hmm. So that it's not triggering panic or causing you to go into a, you know, reactive mode um, or go into a deep cleansing experience because I don't mean that in a good way. I mean like just too much, too much too fast for your system. Mm -hmm. So titrating and knowing how to do that is critically important. It's very important to do the process, to go on the air diet, and it's really important to do it with support of somebody who can guide you through it um, with a lot of attention and awareness and customization so that you're able to do it and stick with it to receive the benefits. Otherwise, what happens, of course, is people are like, this is too intense, this couldn't possibly be good for me. I'm, I'm going into a full-blown panic attack, how could that be good? And I don't recommend that isn't good, but there are ways of doing it that don't take people there. And I think it was understanding that CO2 is not a waste product. It's actually something that we need to balance. Like everything in life, there has to be a balance. And it was the understanding that we're not trying to get rid of all that CO2. We have to maintain some of it to actually allow us to breathe optimally, which was incredible just to understand that. Yeah, I think um, the that was a big aha for me as well, 
you know, turned me on my head, you know, when I first heard it because of everything I had learned in yoga school was, you know, CO2 is bad, you got to get rid of it, clear the lungs, empty the lungs, I list them. And, you know, at the beginning of the book, you know, as breath myths, you know, because these are the things that I learned my teachers taught me and I spouted them off to my students and trained people who are then unfortunately going off and spouting this off in the world as well, you know, um, our progeny, <laughs> you know, they mimic what we say and do. So that's how it goes. However, I, I want to say CO2 is a waste product, right? The excess CO2 and our body produces CO2 because our body needs a certain amount of CO2. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the one of the most profound um, and simple statements that helped me to really understand what I hadn't understood about breathing is that quote from Leon Chaitel, um, who is an amazing um, uh, osteopath and um, respiratory and, and physiology expert. And, and uh, I, I quote him quite a bit in the book. Um, in any case, he says, uh, breathing is primarily a chemical matter. It's a matter of chemistry, the balance between our two fundamental chemicals that function in our body and that make everything else work, which are oxygen and carbon dioxide, and that we need both. And it's about the appropriate balance between them. And through our breath, we have incredible power to regulate that and therefore impact our prana, right? Like I made that like that when I got that, it was like, oh, that's what the yogis were doing. They were messing with their chemistry through their breathing and creating these different altered states and experiences. And now I understand the logic behind it. I'm a very logical person. I'm a scientific person. So I'm like, okay, all right. So these, these experiences, like, what is it? Just like some, some fairy dust gets sprinkled on them and then that happens, right? It's like, no, it's chemistry. And they were brilliant scientists. They paid attention and they noticed, oh, if they breathe a lot, this is what happens. If they breathe a little, this is what happens. It completely alters and shifts their physiology or in their terminology, their prana, the way in which energy flows through their system. Yes. And the, the detail, I mean, obviously there's lots of detail to it, but the overriding arch is, is really breathe less. So you want to not overbreathe. You want to be slower and um, uh, calmer and, and a quieter breath. And you go on to talk about um, all the, the kind of, um, what do you call them, exercises that you could do, um, your pranayama exercises um, that will help you start to manage your breath in a more optimal way so you talk about controlled pause you talk about the subtle breath core breathing diaphragm breathing and even going into the whole retention and suspension of the breath can you talk a bit more about that for people who don't know even that much in terms of prana yes yes so i want to start by saying that all breathing involves the diaphragm if your diaphragm isn't moving, you're not breathing. You need help fast. Okay. So um, the question is actually twofold. One is how active is the diaphragm moving? Like the diaphragm is a muscle. So like any other muscle, it can be weak or strong, tight or loose, right? 
So the condition of the diaphragm is important in terms of the biomechanics of breath. There's the nose and there's the diaphragm, right? Two primary important pieces to get straight and clear. Healthy for everybody to be a nose breather and to have a good, flexible, strong, nice range of motion diaphragm, healthy diaphragm, okay? So that's one piece of the diaphragm yes. breathing. The other is who is the diaphragm teaming up with? So the diaphragm does not play solo. It works with auxiliary muscles. So one can use the chest muscles, the pecs, and actually the intercostals to assist with breathing, okay? That's one mode of the biomechanics, the way that the diaphragm can work. The other is for the diaphragm to sync with the abdominals and to work in synchronicity with the, the, with the abdominals in that movement out on the inhale and in on the exhale. So of the two, they are not equal, right? Chest breathing and the assist of the, uh, the accessory muscles of the chest and the neck, the scalenes, the intercostals, that is important when we're running up a hill, when we're screaming for help, you know, when we have to lift something, you know, like a car off of a kid or something like that, when we need to really have that sympathetic nervous system activated and we need that oomph of extra, right? If I'm sitting, as I'm doing now and talking to you, and I'm consistently using the chest muscles, how many times a day, Emma? How many times a day am I breathing? A lot. <laughs> 20,000, 20,000, right? 20, okay, what, what is happening in my body as I do that, right? So first of all, it's very straining and stressful on the neck and shoulders. Secondly, it's consistently pushing the accelerator down on the sympathetic nervous system because the cue is there's a problem, there's a problem, there's a problem. This is not, everything is not okay because there's that little bit of a like sympathetic fight or flight activation that's happening, right? Whereas if one is activating the abdominals and keeping the chest passive, so there's more of a lateral movement out in, the message to the brain and the nervous system is everything's cool, we're fine. No lion chasing us, it's good to be here, right? Which will naturally also help to slow the breath because when the sympathetic nervous system gets activated, the breath gets activated. Remember the mind and the breath? The mind starts going, well, obviously there's a problem. So then it starts focusing on where is there a problem? Oh, I know the problem is that thing he said or did earlier today or that email I got or that thing that I read in the news. And then it starts whirling around that, which, of course, gets our breath excited, which gets our sympathetic nervous system more excited. And they start wagging each other's tail when we bring the breath down low in the body. So it's di diaphragmatic. My point is, this is chest diaphragmatic, and this is abdominal diaphragmatic. And learning to become an abdominal diaphragmatic breather is, again, one of those healthy for everybody kinds of things. Right. Yeah. So training the abdominals to sink and move with 
the diaphragm. Yeah. Really important. And it's imperative for people with chronic neck and shoulder and jaw tension. This is not a separate topic than the breath. You cannot, yoga teachers, you cannot, you can give all your like fun little neck and shoulder workout things. And if you or your client is a mouth breather, a chest breather or a paradoxical breather, which means the diaphragm's moving in the opposite direction as in, is normal and healthy, you're gonna constantly have chronic neck and shoulder pain. Whereas if you become an abdominal diaphragmatic breather and shut to your mouth and breathe through your nose, tension up here immediately releases, jaw tension releases, mm -hmm. right? So all good. And I think from a teacher's point of view, I mean, we all understand that diaphragm breathing is, is the way to go. But for a lot of people, that's really difficult, as you've just pointed out. So it was nice to read that there, there are more subtle versions of that that you can do just to even get people started. Because I think the problem being that we are taught diaphragm breathing, but it's really difficult to teach that sometimes. So can you explain a bit more about the subtle breathing and, and how, that, how that might be a starting point? Yeah, so um, part of it is, I, 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 it's true that the term diaphragmatic breathing gets tossed around a lot in the world and certainly in the yoga, world of yoga. However, what I see still in terms of the, the you know, sort of like the three-part complete or full yoga breath is, right? So there's still this activation of the chest, which is actually not subtle. And did you hear my breath? Yes. Could you hear my breath? Okay, yes. also not subtle. Yes. So in the yoga texts, in the yoga sutras, and the, the definition of, of pranayama is that it's subtle. It's sukshma. It's subtle and smooth, right? So there's a light quality to it. Prana is subtle. Prana isn't, you know, it's not, it's not the physical. It's not the anamaya. This is gross. I don't mean it's gross. I mean, it's, you know, right? Um, prana is subtle. We're working with the subtle body. And so the practices that go with the subtle body are subtle by nature. So subtle breathing, I call it that because it is directly in alignment with the teaching around pranayama is that the breath is to be subtle. So through the nose and so very light that this is actually the description that's given in the sutras and also in other of the, um, the texts on pranayama, that if you put a finger under your nose, actually they used a, a feather. The image is if you put a feather or a piece of fabric under your nose, you're breathing so light that there's no ruffle in the feather, right? So the idea is that you, you can't even hardly feel any breath passing over your nose. Now that's quite different than what we see in yoga classes, which is a lot of, <sighs> right? So they even say the measurement of pranayama is this: you put your hand in front of, this is a quote almost, right? <laughs> you put your hand in front of your mouth and nose and the farther out you can feel your breath from your face, the less it's pranayama. Ah, okay. The closer you bring your hand in, in order to feel your breath, mm -hmm. right, the more pranayama. And by that description, one must breathe more subtly. Yeah. But one it, must breathe lighter. 
it is so opposite to really, as you say, what's being taught in understanding in the West. Um, so it, it's it's a great way to think about it, and anyone can do that. They can they can do that subtle rather than an actual technique that they feel overwhelmed by. Yes, and let me say this um, because I've had experiences both personally and also in in teaching now many 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 people um, that some people who have been um, for whatever the way that they're system is set up, whether they're more prone to hyperventilation and, um, and tend to be overbreathers, you know, much like me, um, find that the permission to not try and take a deep breath, I can't tell you how many people have apologized to me upon initial, you know, like, hello, and say, I, I, I'm sorry, I know I don't breathe enough. Like, people apologize for not breathing enough all the time. And then when I say, well, actually, I'm going to ask you to breathe less, and then the relief. For some people, it's like, oh, my God, because all that over-breathing, it's been really, really hard. Kind of your description of your experience with Ashtanga, like, oh, my God, this is so hard. Like, I had two of my students, long, long, long-time students who were very dedicated to yoga, very dedicated to me, and just really committed. When I shifted from the full yoga breath to the slighter breath, both of them came up to me separately and said, oh, my God. That felt so much better. Both of them had anxiety issues and both of them kept feeling, believing that there was something wrong with them because they trusted me. And I was saying that this big full yoga breath was so healthy and important and good. And I, every class I emphasized it. So the message they kept giving them, there's something wrong with me. I must not be getting this right. It must be me. I just have to practice it more. Mm -hmm. So I can be better at it. And when I gave them permission to actually breathe lighter and less, they were like, oh, my God, my whole system calmed down. Yeah. Like, I don't feel like I'm fighting at war all the time. And, of course, that helps with the anxiety, which helps with blah, 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 all of that. Mm -hmm. So that's one response. The other response, when people have been big breathing for so long, we get back to the calorie intake, right? You put them on. You, first of all, you say, close your mouth and already that they're on a diet, right? Because mouth's bigger than the nose, right? So that already feels hard. Then you say now, make it less, make it inaudible so you can't hear it. We say, take away those accessory muscles up here and just focus on a slight flare of the lower ribs on the inhale and a gentle hug inward on the exhale. And they're like, okay, I'm gonna die right? I can't possibly survive like this. So that's where that titration comes in. So for some people, it's really critical to not go from the full on hyperventilation to this really, really mini breath. One has to come down gradually, gradually, gradually. Yeah. Um, and so um, the, so one of the things that I've been practicing is, is the kind of controlled pause um, to, to have a because you can gauge slightly what kind of breather you are. You were saying in the book from a couple of these sort of tests um, that w will give you an idea. What, what would you say to people in terms of what they could try on themselves? Yeah, so I want to uh, clarify that the CP, sometimes it's translated as controlled pods, as a pitta and knowing the pitfalls of anything that re renders one to be in control. You know, then we want to like control it all. So... Um, 
I shifted it and I used the term comfortable pause because really and truly the intention is to actually gauge what your, um, your comfort level is, like how urgent do you feel the need to breathe? Like how much is your body programmed? It's all programming people. Please understand that we, our brain sets our breath rate and volume based on how we breathe most of the time. So if we are breathing like that, hard and fast and big most of the time, or big size every 15, 20 minutes, our brain gets programmed and then it says, okay, this is normal. This is the way you need to breathe all the time. And then when you try and change that, the brain's going, no, don't change that. That's the way it's supposed to be. So it takes time. It's actually training, like fitness training. It's training and it takes time and patience, okay? So the comfortable pause, what it's testing really, and it's not a practice, it's just a benchmark. It'd be like practicing taking your blood pressure. Like you take your blood pressure to get information about the status of the, the circulatory system, right? And the pressure on the heart. It's a measurement. The comfortable pause is a measurement. What it's measuring is how much your body is calling for breath. And the more frequently it's calling for breath, the more urgency, the more out of balance your pranic system, your physiology is. Yeah. So that's, it's information only. Okay, Good. so you don't practice it. You just take it like you would take your pulse and say, oh, that's what it is. My pulse is a little high today, right? So the lower your comfortable pause is, and the comfortable pause is this, it's how comfortable are you suspending the breath Right? So after the exhale, before the next inhale, how comfortable are you not breathing? That first urgency to, I have to breathe, right? Is that's when you let go. So to take your comfortable pause, very simple. You have your little stopwatch. You know, we all have this glued to our, right? We have our stopwatch in our phone, most of us. So, you know, you set your stopwatch, you inhale lightly through the nose, exhale lightly through the nose, seal. So mouth is sealed, nose is sealed. And when you feel like you need to breathe, you let go and you look at the stopwatch and whatever it says, whatever the number is, That's it. it's a real good yoga practice of detachment, right? You're not striving to hold this along. It's not that. It's simply giving you information. The higher that number is, the more balanced your breath is. The longer you're able to comfortably hold without feeling like it's no big deal, you know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, you know, between 30 and 40 is really healthy. Now that sounds like, oh my God, you know, but that's because most of us are well under 20 seconds with yeah. that. And whether that's because our sympathetic nervous system is so keyed up because we live in a stressful world and we live very stressful lives or because of our diet, or because we're on medications, or because we don't sleep, right? Or because we mouth breathe, or we over breathe, or a combination of all of those things will increase our respiratory rate and volume. All of those things, stress, diet, right? All of these things increase respiratory rate and volume, and that will program our brain to tell us that we need to keep breathing, we need to keep breathing, we need to keep breathing, which keep everything kind of on set on high gear. So slowing that down and lowering that and the practices of subtle breathing, core breathing, which is subtle breathing with more 
abdominal specific engagement and really um, emphasizes strengthening the pelvic floor transverse abdominis and the diaphragm to be just better conditioned to support the breath, not to mention the lower back. Good for both. Okay. And I I'm an efficiency expert, so I love things that do multiple tasks in one, right? Um, so it's always in the direction of a subtle, becoming a subtle breather on a consistent basis so that your comfortable pause is ranging, you know, above 20, 25 and going in the direction of more 30, 35 on a regular basis, which means your physiology is not having to struggle so much. There'll be less inflammation in your body. There'll be less inflammation in your brain. No, really, your mind will be much calmer because you're not feeling that constant urge to breathe, to breathe, to breathe. And that, that triggering, I was one of the world's best sires, you know. Yeah. That was my normal expression. You know, my kids used to laugh and make fun of me all the time. Here's mom. And I thought I was releasing stress, but what I was doing was over-breathing and perpetuating my over-breathing pattern. I was like an over-breathing addict. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So some of the symptoms that I read are, yeah, like you say, um, sighing, yawning a lot, uh, coughing. Um, coughing, sniffing, um, also chronic fatigue. Yep. Um, sleep, sleep apnea, snoring, insomnia, chronic um, anxiety people. There's uh, several studies, many studies that look at the correlation between people who low level hyperventilators and anxiety and definitely, you know, they, again, they wag each other's tail. So big correlation there. Um, depression as well. Um, chronic inflammatory conditions, TMDJ, because the neck breathing and the jaw clenching, all of it goes together. IBS, yeah. things like that. Go IBS, absolutely, absolutely. M migraine headaches. Okay, so the list is, is fairly long. Um, it's very, very long. Yeah, um, I actually was listening to uh, another podcast um, from a very famous podcaster, Joe Rogan, um, and he had a, a, a guy on called James Nestor, who was a... Oh, yes. Artist. Yeah. I would... Did, uh, I, I was I was going to I was going to just bring up James Nestor because one of the things that I, if it, in addition to my book, um, I think his book um, uh, Breath uh, the uh, what is it the New Science of a Lost Art, um, brilliant and wonderful and it's more it's written more his book is written more for mainstream and my book is written more for people in the world of yoga, um, and tying the ancient teachings of pranayama with the respiratory science but the respiratory science is the respiratory science. It's yeah. same, same. But the most profound thing to me about his book was his own personal experience where he agreed to do this study where he plugged his nose for like three weeks or something. And so he only breathed through his mouth. And what happened, his blood pressure went up. Um, he started snoring and having sleep apnea, which he had never had before. His aerobic fitness went down. Um, he gained weight. I mean, he was sluggish. He couldn't like his health went plummeted. I mean, plummeted yep. and of course you know fortunately as soon as they took the the plugs out of his nose and he could nose breathe again everything came back up to normal but I use that as it's so dramatic when people are like well I don't get it like what's the big deal nose breathe mouth breathe no big deal it's a big deal your body thinks it's a big deal exactly and one of the things that he also talked about which I think you mentioned in your book as well is uh, mouth taping as well particularly I'm I'm 
I'm a nightly mouth taper. I never leave home without it. Right. And um, I, people always ask, duct tape? I don't know why people go there. It's like amazing to me. No, not duct tape. You know, <laughs> you want to use paper tape, gentle, hypoallergenic, that's meant for the skin. There's actually, myotape has been designed. Um, uh, my teacher, Patrick McCowan, um, designed it specifically. There's an adult and child version where it goes around the mouth. And you think of it like tape with spandex in it. So it's yeah. it steel, but in a pinch, if you needed to talk or cough or open your mouth, you could, but it keeps it pretty much closed because when we're unconscious, we do our pattern. Yeah. So if you've been a mouth breather your whole life, when you go to sleep, I guarantee you, you're mouth breathing and mouth breathing and snoring and sleep apnea, they're all sort of part of the same continuum. So better night's sleep. The first night that I had my granddaughter who was a habitual mouth breather, she had um, impacted adenoids and tonsils and had them removed. And I taught her how to become a nose breather because just removing them doesn't mean that you shift from a mouth, mouth breathing to nose breathing automatically. If the training is there for this, then that's what you're going to do. So I taught her how to become a nose breather. And then gradually we started using the tape. She was about eight at the time. And you don't want to do it with little, little kids, but older kids that can understand. And the next morning when she woke up, I said, how do you feel? And she, when she took her tape off, she said, I feel wonderful. It's like the best night sleep she had ever had in her entire life. Because from infancy, she had that blockage when she laid down or, you know, she was always congested and had ear infections and sinus infections and was always like post-nasal drip. And that was me, but nobody knew how to help me with that, right? So I carried it all the way up into my 50s until I learned how to become a nose breather. Incredible. That's incredible. And you touched on uh, Patrick McCoe and your, your Buteco. Is it, how do you say Buteco? Buteco? Buteco. Buteco. He's a Russian physician who came up with this method of teaching people to become nose breathers and to breathe less, not more, to eradicate many of the, the, the common um, ailments that are associated with respiratory dysfunction. Right. And the ones that I mentioned, you know. And you, you've trained in that, and that's where some of the influence comes into the book as well, doesn't it? Oh, it's, it, it changed my world. I mean, like, like you read the book, my book, and your world got turned upside down. I, when I started studying Buteco, I mean, my experience was I had all, I was yawning all the time and coughing all the time. I had, the, I had had a respiratory infection, and I couldn't fight it. Like I couldn't get myself back to normal and my health was going downhill, downhill. Like when I was in my early twenties and thirties before I started yoga and I knew that I didn't want to go there. Um, and then when I started studying Buteco and was learning to breathe less and all of this new information about breathing, but my health got better. I stopped coughing, you know, like my cough went down 75% in the first few days, my sleep got quiet. And I felt rested in the morning. That was awesome. You know, um, I started just feeling more alert and alive. I had more physical energy and more mental energy and more clarity and like all these things that are associated with pranayama, except I was doing the opposite of what I had learned was pranayama. So that definitely spun me on my head. And so it was Buteco that opened my eyes to my avidya, to the, the things I really didn't know. Yeah. about the breath, even though I was calling myself an expert in breathing and I was training people to be experts like me, right? 
Uh, and basically, I didn't have any idea about respiratory health, respiratory science, what functional breathing is versus dysfunctional breathing. I had no clue. So then I realized I have to really get a handle on this. And so then I did deep dive study, took my good pit to nature and just plunged in the pool and read everything I could, all the articles, all the science, you know, went back to the original teachings of pranayama and went, oh, they got it. Like here we are in Western science, the world of Western physiology. They, they're saying the same thing. Something got lost in translation in the way that pranayama has been transmitted. It's not that pranayama, this isn't pranayama. Subtle breathing is pranayama. Yes. Right? Yes. Nose breathing is pranayama. Abdominal diaphragmatic breathing is pranayama. You read the text, there's no talk about the chest. There's no talk about ujjayi being how loud a sound can you make. There's no reference to that. It's yes. about the sensation, again, it's subtle the felt sense of the closure of the glottis, that actually by doing that, it increases diaphrag abdominal diaphragmatic action and helps one to not chest breathe. Okay. That's right. So the intention is all there. It's, 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 if you just, you know, if we could just launch over from the original teachings to where we are today with our understanding of respiration and health, it's same, same, but yeah. we really got, got confused and muddled in between and like, oy vey, the things that we're teaching in yoga class, it's, it's really, it's, it's not only embarrassing, but it's also, it's harmful. It's potentially harmful. I know it was harmful for me and I have been flooded with yogis, yoga teachers, yoga therapists, even who have come to me and said, oh, this is my story too. This is, you know, like you said, like I recognize myself in this book. And I, um, I would say that in my, slightly in a different way, in my teacher training, I was almost scared away from teaching pranayama because of the risks that they said would go with it, even to do with physiology, but also mental health. And that it could create, you know, this um, awakening within you that you might not want. Or, so I, I wonder whether, although it's the third limb, sometimes I wonder whether it's actually the forgotten limb, because we're either doing it not correctly or we're not doing it at all because we've maybe been away from the original teachings which is not harmful yeah exactly i think that um again there's like you say you, i think it's 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 great thinking of it as the forgotten limb of yoga because there is so much misinformation and misunderstanding mm -hmm. about it um and uh it's true many i hear that a lot too oh i just don't teach pranayama because i'm just scared it's and i heard all of those cautionary notes but nobody ever gave me the explanation of why and i think it's because respiratory science was left out of the equation yeah because once you look at the science and i mean i've had multiple respiratory physiologists who are now in my world and i've read lots of books on like it's the same it doesn't change it's like blood pressure you know like there's a healthy normal range and then when it goes high there's all these health risks it's the same with respiration there's just some basic facts that are just facts. They're not fake facts, they're just facts. And so if you understand that and you understand what functional breathing is biomechanically, biochemically, and you understand what can happen when the physiology, you know, the biomechanics go awry, then you can match symptoms with response, right? And, and it follows logically. Um, it doesn't mean it's easy, though. I always say it's, re it's much easier to breathe more 
than to breathe less. Just like it's easier to eat more than to eat less. Of course. And what, so what if, if a teacher has read your book, um, what would be the, spark, the starting point to help a teacher from this point? What could they teach that they know is safe and it's um, you know, optimal and, and it's going to really give benefits right from the get-go? What would you suggest? Okay. Number one, become a 24-7 nose breather and train your students. Teach your students, your family, everybody who is in your world, your children. Please teach children to be nose breathers. Mouth breathing with children is related to all kinds of health issues um, now and also in their future, um, setting themselves them up for problems, including ADHD, um, behavioral issues, bedwetting, all kinds of things, so anxiety. So mouth, uh, mouth, nose breathing over mouth breathing, number one, everybody will benefit from that. Secondly, get out of the chest breathing and the big hyperinflation of the chest and the lungs and learn to become an abdominal diaphragmatic breather. Those two things, cross the board and breathe less, breathe light, okay? Slow it down and lighten it up. Um, however, there's more science in terms of using this as a pranayama practice. That's just functional breathing. That's not pranayama, by the way, folks. That's just become a healthy breather. That's the starting point, functional breathing, understand it, live it, right? Teach it. Then once you become a functional breather, then you can start to play with manipulating this thing, that thing, okay? And in terms of becoming really um, uh, proficient and competent at using the breath as a healing modality or teaching it truly as a pranayama, I recommend um, if, you're in, if you really are, are drawn to this, um, taking my Restore Your Prana certification program, which is launching in the fall. And it's a 10 to 12 month course um, with, that's fully mentored. It's self-paced so, and it's online so people from all over the world can take it. I created it because this question, of course, is the natural question. Great, what do I do about it? I want to I do it right, but how do I learn how to do it, right? So again, not all, I mean, I went through the Buteco training which is wonderful, but it's not yoga, right? You, it's not in a yoga context. What you'll get from me is that understanding of Western science and respiratory health in a yoga context. So always with the, the yoga teachings and the pranayama taught hand in hand. Um, so if that's of interest, I would suggest going to my website. There's workshops. I have a live workshop happening in the States in October. Um, my Restore Your Prana 10-hour, uh, two-day two workshop. Um, it's also pre-recorded for anybody from around the world who can't attend live. There's a recorded um, version of it that you can download and listen to, and it's a prerequisite for the training, but it'll give you, um, uh, it'll kind of fill in and kind of uh, uh, full, make a fuller picture from the book. You know, lots of visuals, and it's me talking and taking people through practices. And then if you're really, if you're really interested in doing this, and doing the deep dive, then I recommend the, the, the course, the certification program. Great. Okay. That's, that's great. Great advice. Um, now, I also, it, it seems a, a bit of a random question, but when you, and you touched on it earlier when you talked about a face mask, in terms of sort of increasing your CO2 tolerance, are face masks a way of doing that? I mean, are you actually holding in so that's what you were implying that not only is it filtering but you're going to be able to build up a bit of tolerance because I found when I put my mask on to begin with there was that little panicky bit of how am I going to do this um but then 
once you get used to it. And I wondered whether that is actually doing that process. Is that, would that be the case? Yeah. So think about the paper bag, the old, you know, in the movies, you know, somebody's having a panic attack and yeah. they give them a paper bag and they're, what are they doing? They're not breathing in oxygen. They're rebreathing their CO2 because CO2 actually has a sedative effect on the nervous system, right? So it's calming for the nervous system. And it also reduces higher levels of CO2 reduce our breath urgency, our, our, desire to breathe it actually calms that down that's why when you test to see how long you can hold your breath you're not actually it's not actually a, the comfortable pause doesn't actually um uh register how where what what your co2 level is it registers your tolerance to co2 so you use that term correctly um, because we become intolerant the more we breathe the less tolerant we are of co2 which means we have to breathe more and more and more but to get healthier, we have to become more tolerant and it takes time for our body to acclimate to those higher levels because we're messing with the chemistry. So yes, the mask is like a little bit of the paper bag, right? Yeah. It's not so intense. So we can do, because paper bag actually isn't something you want to do all the time. It's, you know, like it, the mask is a better idea. Yeah. Um, but yes, it will. But, and in that, you know, people, the first, especially people who are over breathers or big breathers, when they first put the mask on, they have that feeling like, oh my God, I'm suffocating. I can't possibly do this. It's because their CO2 tolerance is, you know, so low that even that little bit of extra, they feel panicky. But as you wear it for longer periods of time, you become more acclimated and it's actually much healthier. And wearing it while you exercise, keeping your nose keeping your mouth closed and breathing through your nose when you exercise is also really a great way of building your CO2 tolerance. Great. So a good spin out of COVID. There's something good has come out of it then that we can wear a mask and, and train ourselves a bit. Well, you know, I mean, I could go into a whole, I don't, I mean, the, the downside of COVID is very obvious in terms of the, the death and, and, and the, the just, how horrific it has been for people, people who have survived in the long haulers and what, what they're contending with and I, I, a lot of downside. But, but on the good side, in terms of prana, prana and energy, planetarily and within ourselves, becoming quieter and more internal and less externally grasping for things, like, you know, really, it's a much more yogic way to live. And, you know, think of how much the air cleared in the world when the factories shut down. You know, people, I remember that picture from India of the people who lived right next to the Himalayas and never saw them until this happened. And then, you know, four weeks into it, Mother Nature, like look what she was able to do, right? When we got out of the way and we stopped pouring crap, you know, into her pranic atmosphere and our pranic atmosphere. So yes, yes, pranically speaking, COVID I think has been very good for the our, our our whole selves in in many metaphorical symbolic ways as well as as functional ways a real shift absolutely now if we have time um maybe just a very quick one if you w wish because you have already covered some of the breathing exercises but we thought we might do a quick one just to show some sure sure let's just do let's do three minutes of subtle breathing and i'll just take you through subtle core breathing and the 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 combination um, sometimes it's easier for people to learn subtle breathing with more distinct core engagement 
because it gives them a way of shifting out of the biomechanical lift drop of the neck and shoulders. So bring your hands, please, onto your, um, you know, kind of span them from your lower ribs all the way down. The transverse abdominis, your deepest abdominal core muscle wraps all the way around the body like this. It's like a little corset. It attaches to the ribs and it attaches to the pubis down at the bottom, okay? And then it, it wraps all the way around to the backside. So as we inhale, the abdominals expand and relax. And as we exhale, the abdominals hug inward and upward. And in that, the transverse abdominus is attached to the rib cage. It's moving in the same direction as the diaphragm. It pulls the ribs together as it contracts and it helps assist drawing the ribs apart as we breathe in. Now the diaphragm moves in the same direction. On inhale, it pulls the ribs apart as the abdominals relax. And as the abdominals pull in, the diaphragm re returns to its dome shape under the ribs. So the movement is inhale, out, and exhale, drawing in, right? And then up here, you might just take a hand and just notice if you feel any up-down movement, any lift drop of the shoulders, any tightening in the neck and the jaw, can you pacify that? And although we didn't talk about the tongue, it's really an important part of the topic of breathing, as well as alignment, um, but placing the tongue so that it rests in the roof of the mouth, the flat of the tongue, so it's not dropped low in the palate, which goes along with mouth breathing, by the way. But the functional place for the tongue to rest is up in the upper palate. So we're working with this out in lateral movement. And once you establish that, then taking your finger under your nose and observing how much breath is flowing over your finger and can you make it less so you feel less breath happening. And in the direction of transformation, we need to change something. If we wanna acclimate our system to less, to needing less air so that we increase our CO2 tolerance, then we need to drop it down to a less than comfortable place. So it's not just like, oh, chill, I could do this all day. Now you actually want to be feeling like, is three minutes up yet? You wanna feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I know, again, that's also like, wait a minute, I thought the breath was always supposed to be comfortable. Well, if you're breathing in a comfortable range, you're breathing how you usually breathe. You know, I always say to yoga teachers, so if a student comes in and says, well, this is just how I stand, are you gonna say, oh, okay, well, just stand that way, do all your poses that way, because it's comfortable, right? Or are you gonna instruct them to become aware of their alignment and to do it different yeah. in the name of health long-term, right? So in the same way, Breathe less. See if you can find that comfortable, discomfortable, dis uncomfortable, sustainable edge. Yes. Has a little edginess, but you can just kind of hang there for a little bit longer. Notice what's happening in the mind. Use your good yoga mantras, mindful awareness. My mantra was, this is enough. This is enough. My body was saying, this is not enough. But my mind kept saying, Aren't you funny? You believe that to be true, but really and truly you're not dying. You're able to go into this whole neurotic spin about why it's not enough. So there's enough oxygen getting to your brain. 
to keep that story going. So you're fine, Robin. Just keep breathing light, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And I think if you try and do it too much, you end up then having to take a big deep breath, which then means yes. you, you, you're overdoing it. You're, you're, you know, you're pushing yourself too far, which is a good, a good signal, isn't it? Exactly. So you don't ever want to take yourself to the point where you feel, oh my God, I can't do that, right? So you, that's where that titrating is so important. And it's breath by breath, right? Sometimes you can feel like, oh, this is okay, I can do this. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, I can't do this. Okay, so you are in control, right? You can just bring it up a little bit. Okay, it's more tolerable here. It's still a little uncomfortable, but it's tolerable. Okay, right? And then when it's enough, it's enough, yeah. right? You want to build to where you can sustain that subtle breathing for four or five you know, minutes, building up to 10 minutes at a time. So that overall, your brain is just saying, ah, okay, we don't have to breathe. You know, there's no, no lion. We can just right. be chill. We can just relax. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been um, unbelievably um, insightful. Uh, as I say, I've loved the, okay. um, I love the way that the, almost like the yoga texts become alive again, because we are marrying it up with science. And for those who like that, science aspect as well that's a really nice um combining so it's been wonderful and yeah. um, just to remind us where we can find you online on social media to get yeah. all the courses in the book and and you haven't mentioned yeah. journal which was the book that oh yeah so yeah so the journal takes all the every chapter in the book has practices yep. and then the journal is taking those practices and providing charts and places where you can actually write out your reflections so that you you can actually track yourself the 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 practices are intended you know by their nature to cause you to think they're not just like do these exercises right but they're really about transforming and it's called the svadhyaya breath journal svadhyaya means self-reflection right so it's about learning about yourself becoming more self-aware through this process okay. of of observing the breath so how to find me it's easy Essential Yoga Therapy is my website, EssentialYogaTherapy.com. Mm -hmm. um, I do have a Essential Yoga Therapy Facebook page and Instagram. I also have a Restore Your Prana page. Um, right. If you put Restoring Prana, you'll find my books. They're available on Amazon and wherever your distributor might be. Yeah. Um, and yeah. by Singing Dragon, is that right? The publisher of your Yes, published, published by Singing Dragon, which is in the UK. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay, well, um, as I say, it's been absolutely wonderful to speak to you. I can't thank you enough for over an hour of your time. So I know you'll be busy. Thank you very much for, for giving that to us. I know that everyone yeah. will value, get a lot of value out of, out of our talk today. I just want to leave with this. I, I, I'm very, a very dedicated teacher. Um, teaching is my calling. And I've, I've loved everything that I've been able to teach in the world of yoga. This feels different to me. This feels really and truly like a deep dharma that um, what I learned about what I didn't know was huge. Uh, and I studied with some of the most senior teachers in the world. And, and, I, and, I, and I know I'm not saying that in a braggartly way. I'm saying that we don't know what we don't know until we learn what we didn't know, right? And so I really want to support yoga teachers and yoga therapists in becoming 
clear teachers, you know, really good educators about the breath because it really is our heritage. Like the yogis understood the power of the breath. It is as powerful as they said. However, it needs to be taught in a way that really potentializes that power, right? And, and doesn't cause harm. And we can do that. We can learn to do that. It's all in information, right? And, and, and understanding and practice. So I just want to make the, this information as accessible as I can. Yes, and, and, and I think people will recognize your expertise and, and will definitely be seeking, seeking your knowledge in, in all forms, on and offline, I'm sure. Um, is there anything else? Have we covered everything that we want to today? I'm sure we could go on and on for another hour probably, but um, thank you so much, Robin, for joining us today. It's been, it's been wonderful. You bet. Thank you so much for this opportunity to share. Namaste. Namaste. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Yoga and we hope you feel inspired. You can find more of our free podcasts at www.voicesofyoga.com and we are on all the main podcast platforms too. We are very open to comments and suggestions so if you'd like to also leave us a review on iTunes that would be fantastic. If you would like to know when the most recent podcast is going to be broadcast you can sign up to our newsletter on the website and we will drop you an email with that recent update. Voices of Yoga is our passion project and if you like what we're doing and you would like to support us, it would be very much appreciated. And you can do that through a very small donation on our website on the donation button if you feel so inclined. If you would like to collaborate with us in terms of sponsorship, advertising or even suggest coming on and being a guest, then please drop us an email at voicesofyoga at mail.com. So thanks again, and we look forward to bringing you another inspiring yoga story next week. Namaste.